Hello, and welcome to Smart Investing in the USA. This is your host, Kevin Chambers. Joining me today is Joe Daner, a member of Frost Brown Todd Attorneys based in Cincinnati, Ohio. Joe concentrates his practice on multinational business and securities. He counsels a wide variety of companies, domestic and foreign, on international investment and global personnel matters. Thank you for joining us today. We'll be talking about setting up operations in the United States, about what structure that an investor might want to use, and about uh, things like the hiring process, employment laws, whether or, or how to move people from your home country to the United States, taxes. So we'll be covering a few bases today, but uh, welcome to the show, Joe. Well, Kevin, great to join you. Happy to be part of this. Well, I think um, uh, let's assume that our listener has decided on where in the United States they're going to set up their operations. But uh, uh, one of the first questions they may have is, what kind of structure or business structure should I use uh, in, in the United States? Should, should it be a, a LLC, a joint venture, or how should I structure it to avoid paying too many taxes or being unable to change it in the future? Right, well, that's a good starting question, Kevin, and let, let's just tackle it. Uh, there are two kinds of entities, basically, in the United States for a foreign investor. Uh, one is called a corporation, the oldest form of legal entity we have. And the other is called what you call the LLC, which stands for the Limited Liability Company. Uh, some foreigners may be surprised to know there really is no such thing as a U.S. entity. Instead, you form an entity in one of our states. So you pick a state. And you can either form a corporation or an LLC, which the foreign investor can own 100% of. That's quite all right. And um, so the federal taxes are all going to be exactly the same, no matter what state you pick and what form of entity you take. And so the real question is, are some states a little better on taxes, a little lower on taxes, a little more favorable? And that's always worth a discussion. But having said that, yeah, let's say there's a company that decides uh, it's in the skiing business and it wants to be in the state of Vermont. Uh, the obvious starting point is, well, just form an, a Vermont entity and get on with it because that's, that, that state's going to tax the activity of the foreign investor. If, on the other hand, it's, it's a company that could locate almost anywhere, hopes to have a full U.S. market, then it's good to have an individual conversation about what state to put the entity in and uh, how it's going to be taxed. You mentioned a joint venture. Let me tackle that. Sometimes a foreign investor will say, well, we don't know that much about the United States. We have a lot to learn. And we, we, we found somebody we want to team up with and own it together. And that's, that's just fine. If, if that happens, uh, the U.S. Uh, joint venture partner uh, is probably the one that will uh, already know about how the United States operates and uh, you, you just form it together and you can own it together and that's just fine under U.S. practice. Well, that, uh, let's say that we've chosen our structure and we've set it up. Uh, how, do, how do I go about finding employees to hire in the United States? 
Right. Well, if you're talking about hiring Americans, and of course, a foreigner is very welcome to send certain people here. We'll talk later, probably, Kevin, about how you do that. But let's focus on how you would hire uh, an, an American uh, citizen or, or resident to work for you. Uh, if it's a citizen or a permanent resident, then that person can work anywhere in the United States. There are no, uh, you know, people can move freely within the United States. And uh, how do you go about that? Sometimes a foreign company will meet them at a trade show. They'll know a lot about the sector. And that's a good way it's done. Other times, uh, it's not clear uh, how to find the right uh, chief uh, marketing officer, the, the American CEO that the company wants. And there are choices there. One is, uh, is to hire an executive recruiter. There are many recruiting firms in the United States that will help with that. Another way is uh, inevitably any, any serious companies already going to know the industry and probably know some people in the U.S. And there are ways of informally asking, would you know anybody in this sector? There are also websites such as, well, I won't name names, but many websites now. You can post an opening and you'd be surprised. You get an awful lot of responses. Uh, of course, the disadvantage there is you don't know if it's a 16-year-old teenager responding, really, or somebody serious about it. But that, these are the various ways people go about it. Mm. It's important, of course, for any, anyone you hire, whether it's American or not, to be accepting of the company's culture and business and the, and the parameters for all that. Mm. Okay. Uh, you mentioned moving an uh, employee from the home country to run the operation in the United States. When uh, does that become work that triggers the need for immigration or tax considerations? Right. Well, we have a very, the United States has a very generous uh, system, uh, the B-1 or B-2 permit that most uh, business people are used to who don't live in the United States. And that lets, uh, uh, especially from uh, visa waiver countries, uh, such as uh, the Nordics and uh, most of Europe and Canada and so on, come quite freely to the United States for a week or two to explore, uh, meet with potential customers, this kind of thing. But once the foreign person wants to literally move to the United States, maybe with his or her family, um, then if you're going to work in the United States uh, and get money from a U.S. company, you have to have work permission. This is true generally around the world. And that's, that's when it kicks in. Now, we have agreements in the United States with many, many countries that basically say, this is a general statement, that if you're going to work in the United States and be in the United States for more than six months in an employable activity, even if you're being paid back home, then we want you to get work permission. Uh, but coming here for a week or two, uh, even several times a year, is not considered uh, work in the United States. It requires a work permit type of, of visa. Mm, okay. Well, let's uh, talk a little bit about hiring in the United States. Um, if, uh, you know, the, uh, regarding employment uh, law and regulations, are there any tips that you have for interviewing candidates? Anything that um, the employer should avoid? Oh, this is, this is a, a great difference between the United States and a lot of the world. You know, Kevin, we're a, a, an at-will country. What does that mean? That means in general, in general. Uh, a business can hire somebody anytime and fire somebody anytime. And likewise, the employee can quit anytime. Uh, 
and so on. We call that at-will employment. But that do is not to say that we don't protect employee rights. And the United States is such a diverse country with so many. We've been made from foreign people moving here. That's what the United States really is. It's a, whole, it's a country of immigrants. And so we protect people uh, against discrimination, racial discrimination, religion, national origin, sexual orientation, all these different things. We want people to be judged on their merits. And so uh, I'll give you a simple way to express this. I remember a wonderful German client we have years ago. Uh, the CEO came over and, and asked the question you asked. And he said, by the way, I'm going to ask these people what's their religion. And uh, I'm certainly going to ask women if they plan to have children. And he went on and on and on. And I said, you can't ask any of those things. You know, all you can really ask is the merits of the person. And uh, now, in talking with a candidate, things will come out. So you don't, you don't ask somebody, how old are you, or what is your date of birth? You see, that could trigger a claim of age discrimination. Mm -hmm. But you can say, tell me about your background. And that person then will respond, well, I've uh, done something for 20 years, and so on and so forth. So this is the basic thing about hiring people. We, we, we want the, the employer to look at every candidate to see are they qualified for the job, can they do the job, mm. and their political ideas, ideas just are not relevant to that. Yeah, so stick to the qualifications. Stick to the yeah. qualifications, right. Well, how about unions? Um, uh, do unions control the hiring process in the United States? Uh, what's their role? And um, people may have heard of right to work. Can you address that? Yeah, let's tackle those. Uh, the number of people uh, who uh, are affiliated with a labor union in the United States has been on the decline for many, many years. The major source of unionized employees now is related to government, teachers, unions, uh, some other uh, government uh, workers that, that have labor unions that are, are significant in, in, in many states. But in most of the private sector today, the vast majority, uh, over 90% of the private sector, uh, there is no union uh, that is involved at all. Uh, there still are important unions, say, in the auto trade. But again, most auto sector workers today do not, uh, are not affiliated with a union. Now, uh, many foreign companies will say, well, gee, we, we, we'd rather have the flexibility of not having to deal with a union. Some like dealing with unions, but if you're, if you're trying to avoid the entanglement from an owner's perspective of dealing with a union, then you hear uh, about this right-to-work thing that you've asked about. It's really a terrible label because there's no right-to-work uh, involved. What that has to do with is simply that in some states, uh, if the company has a union it deals with, uh, what it means is the individuals in that company uh, may have to bargain through the union, but they don't have to pay dues to the union. It's kind of a way of saying we don't want to force people to pay dues uh, to a union, even if a union's involved. Hmm. I see. Has to uh, has to do with, but it's it's quite a misnomer, and in almost every state of the United States today, most of the foreign companies coming here. Uh, will not have to deal uh, with a union. Okay. Well, what about hiring someone temporarily? 
uh, on a probationary period. Is that possible? Yeah, now in a lot of the world, um, there's this idea that for six months or maybe a year, you can hire someone and then if you don't like the, the, the performance of the person, you just say it's been nice, but goodbye. And there's no particular downside to that. But then after that, in a lot of countries, uh, there are mandatory significant uh, termination payments. And you hear uh, uh, about lifetime employment and all this sort of thing. That's not how the United States operates. And so uh, uh, in, the, in the United States, uh, you can hire someone, a uh, probationary period, uh, six months or so on. But after that, um, uh, you, you can basically keep them on this at-will employment scheme that I mentioned earlier. So in a sense, they're always on probation in a sense. And you're never sure how long they're going to stay with you. So, but in general, that's how it works. And companies want good employees to stay, and they, they give benefits to attract good people for long periods of time. But we're a very mobile society. We, we, we like the idea that people are free to come and go from a company, and the companies are, are free to uh, adjust their workforce as needed, given the ups and downs of business and, and the needs they have. So that's, that's quite a difference from the way a lot of the world operates. We have a much freer labor market here uh, than you'll, you'll see throughout continental Europe and uh, really most of the world. Mm, I see. When I hire someone in the United States, do I need a written agreement with them, an employment agreement? Uh, and if so, you know, what do you have to include in, a, in an agreement? Yeah, again, a big difference from a lot of the world. Uh, for in China, for example, every employee must have a written agreement. It's a matter of law. Most employees in the United States do not have a written agreement of any kind. Uh, the exception is uh, to protect a company's secrets. There you would want at least a confidentiality agreement with employees. In most, but not all states, it is also okay if you say... Uh, uh, employee X, if you ever leave us, we don't want you to compete against us for six months or one year or something like that in our particular sector, in our particular region. Some states you can't do that. Other states you can do that. And so if you want to do that, you would need a written agreement. Uh, for executive level talent, usually there's a written agreement, but it might just be a page or two. Uh, covering things like moving a family to the headquarters or something like that. But for the vast majority of people, there's really no uh, written agreement that we have with people. Mm. Uh, there is a common thing here in the States that is less common uh, outside, and we call that the employee handbook. And this can be 50 pages about, uh, we're going to give you a computer, but you don't. we don't want you to use it for your personal uh, watching videos and so on, or, uh, you know, the, the vacation we extend uh, to our employees, or uh, how we help you with uh, building up a, uh, what we call 401k, a kind of savings account for retirement. All those things usually are put into a handbook uh, that are common to employees, but they're not an employment contract. So that that's how we're different in a major way from a lot the way it works in a lot of countries. Uh, how about compensation? Uh, I got a couple of questions about compensation. People uh, in Europe often ask us, how do I know what to pay people uh, that I hire? The United States is a huge country. 
do the amounts that are paid differ across the country in different states? Oh, indeed. And, uh, you know, the United States is a big country. Um, and uh, I'll give you one little insight in, into this. We, we just uh, we're, were talking together, Kevin, in, in uh, this, almost the spring of 2016. Uh, at this time, the median house price in the area where I live, happens to be Cincinnati, Ohio, is a little over $100,000 for the median house price. The same size house in the New York City area would be about eight, about $400,000. And in, take Silicon Valley, it would be about $800,000. So right there you can see that similar things are priced very differently throughout, throughout the country. Big differences in cost of living. Um, and so compensation, of course, likewise, uh, can be quite different. Uh, you can find on the web general information about differences in the uh, cost of living throughout the United States. And for any business, of course, you want to get down to the particular sector, whether it's a computer programmer or a veterinarian or whatever it is, a teacher, whatever it is you're looking for. The wages will be different, and you'll find a lot of free information about generally uh, what it is. Firms can also hire uh, uh, specialist uh, businesses that give good advice uh, about what to pay people. And it's not just salary, it's what sort of medical benefits to offer and uh, do you offer dental insurance and all this sort of thing. Unlike a lot of the world, we do not have what is called universal uh, health provided by the government. We rely far more on the private sector uh, to meet our medical needs. And uh, this is an evolving area, a controversial area really in U.S. politics about how we address people's health generally. But we, we don't have a single health system uh, as you find in most of Europe. And so uh, benefits are very important to, to people. And uh, can, do their children uh, have their health taken care of as part of the company insurance plan? All this sort of thing. So compensation uh, varies widely, both about how much you pay per month or per year, and then also the benefits that you pay over and above the compensation. We, we use the same dollar everywhere in the United States, but it doesn't go as far in some places. But how about uh, executives? Um, are they treated differently uh, from line workers? Well, executives, of course, you're, any business is hiring, you hope, for a long period of time, not just for a year or two. And uh, you, you, you want to attract someone who's really going to become part of the company leadership uh, for some significant period of time. And for that reason, yes, they're treated differently. Having said that, as to uh, company health plans and uh, savings plans, retirement plans, with some exceptions, executives are treated very similarly to just line line workers. Um, but there there can be some differences. Executives also are more likely to want to have a written employment agreement. If you're moving someone from Seattle, Washington to Cincinnati, Ohio to become your uh, chief operating officer and that person's bringing uh, his or her family with them, they want some assurance that they won't be uh, fired the next day uh, because sure. they're, they're making a real change in their lifestyle. So that's that's the real difference. Yeah. But legally, uh, 
they're employees just like the uh, the starting uh, hourly worker. Okay. Well, how about safety? Are there workers' safety laws that are federal in scope or state uh, in scope that uh, an investor should know about? Yeah, that's an, a very important question, and uh, I would say over the last 50 years about, the United States has become more and more specific about this. So we have today a federal agency, uh, you hear the word or the acronym OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And this is a federal national agency requiring all uh, employers basically to live up to certain basic uh, standards. Uh, uh, covering all sorts of things, such as the amount of noise inside a factory uh, so that employees don't go deaf working for a company, or uh, how, how to protect people who are washing windows and skyscrapers, and all, all sorts of things. Uh, and then there are also uh, uh, people who work in a mine have special safety uh, needs from uh, somebody who's uh, working for the telephone company. So OSHA has created a somewhat equal playing field about safety. And then some, some cities and, and states have imposed even more strict laws. Uh, they can't be less strict than the federal laws uh, about safety and things like can you smoke or not inside an office building, all this sort of thing. So just like everywhere else in the world, ultimately we all live in an area and that area can have its own uh, set of rules and you become familiar with that. But in general, on worker safety, the foreign business owner can rely on what OSHA, this federal agency, says about worker safety. Mm, I see. Okay, well, uh, what, what if I hire someone and unfortunately it doesn't work out and I need to let them go or terminate their employment? Uh, how is that usually done in the U.S.? Right. Well, first you want to do it fairly. You don't want to do it on a discriminatory basis. We've talked a little bit about that earlier. But if it's, let's say, the company's profits are down or it had a loss one year and it needs, it has 100 employees and it wants to uh, lay off or terminate uh, 10 employees or 20 employees, that's quite all right in general in the U.S. Uh, because of this at-will employment uh, system we generally have and so you have to do it fairly and it'd be good to get advice on how you do that to avoid any big issues usually uh, although you're you're free as a company unless you've committed otherwise simply to say thank you very much uh, this is your last day of work good luck to you uh, most companies will give uh, a uh, severance payment of a couple weeks or depending on how long the person has worked there maybe maybe more than that but that's how it works. And then those people are now unemployed. And we want them in America, of course, to uh, go get a new job. And the good news is our unemployment rate in the United States today, 2016, is very, very low, close to what economists would say is the about as low as you go. So we have a we have very good full employment now in, in the United States, a lot of opportunities for for even unskilled people to find a job doing something. But that's how it works. But in the time it takes uh, to lose a job and then find a new one, in all the states we have a, a system of unemployment compensation. And in general, that's funded by states and by state funds. 
and employers uh, contribute to the unemployment fund uh, over time, and then the state fund uh, helps people uh, that are unemployed so that they uh, have enough money to get from one job to the next job. That's how it works. Mm. Say things do work out, and I want to move my employee from, say, the United States to an operation I have in Canada or Mexico or South America. Is is that possible? Yes, that's possible, and there are a good number of uh, uh, foreign companies that view the United States as sort of the America's headquarters, or at least the North American headquarters. Uh, now, you, we, we're not like the EU, where a worker can move to any country quite freely um, as a matter of EU practice and law. So you, you can move to any state within the United States, but if a U.S. worker moves to Canada, they will need work permission uh, in Canada to literally move there and work there uh, more than half the year, say, for a Canadian company. Likewise with Mexico. Now, we do have the United States free trade agreements with uh, virtually all of North America. Uh, NAFTA was our, our really the, uh, after Canada, the first great uh, free trade agreement we had. So that Mexico, Canada, and the United States share very free trade. But even so, sending a worker to, from the U.S. to Mexico means you'd have to get a, a visa into Mexico. It's not that hard to get. But that's how you'd have to approach it. Mm, I see. Okay. Well, uh, how about uh, taxes? That's a subject that people always want to know about. Uh, if, if I'm hiring people, are there tax considerations I need to consider uh, in regard to my workforce? Yeah, that's a really important question. And again, there, from a business owner's standpoint, there's good news uh, in the United States. You know, in many, in a number of countries, uh, let's say you pay somebody uh, $10,000 a year in China, well, that's the compensation. You're going to pay another 50% or more uh, to cover the health and the other taxes associated with that. We call that the employee load over and above the salary they're getting. Mm -hmm. United States, on the federal level, it's a very small amount. It's more like 7% that an employer pays to cover Social Security uh, and uh, the Medicare uh, piece, a very small piece, that is a tax. And in general, the employer pays half and the employee pays half. And it comes out of uh, the gross compensation uh, that is paid, withheld. Um, so it's, a, it's in, in global terms, we have a very low mandatory load over and above the salary. Now, of course, the employee uh, pays individual income tax, but that's the, em the employee's issue, and uh, it depends how much they make as to how much they pay. We have a progressive tax on individual income. Now, the, in addition, individual states and even cities can add an earnings tax uh, both to businesses and to employees, and that's where uh, it, that's where the competition among the states comes into play about how much tax we impose on businesses for their employees and how much tax we, uh, a city or a state, uh, imposes as an earnings tax. So that's where you have to get very local and specific about uh, uh, how much extra tax over and above the federal tax 
uh, you're going to pay per employee. Now, having added that, uh, if, an, if a foreign company is coming to the States and intending to employ rule of thumb more than, say, 10 people, the company should definitely inquire uh, from that state and locality incentives that might be available. These incentives can range from actual cash payments to helping improve a road or an office building or lighting or job training. So this is something that must be done before the foreign company commits to uh, coming to that particular location. Mm. Well, I know in some countries and some regions, uh, it's illegal or not possible for uh, locations, cities, states to offer incentives that are different from the other states, but uh, the U.S. is quite different in that regard. That's right, Kevin. Uh, like other countries, though, the United States government uh, isn't, isn't going to bargain with you over federal tax rates. That's true. Uh, now, the United States government has certain uh, offerings, uh, certain loan programs, all sorts of things that are equally available to foreign companies as they are to U.S.-owned companies. We don't discriminate in any way against the foreign ownership of a U.S. business. So a foreign owner coming to the States is just as eligible for uh, loan funds and other things that are available from the federal government. But you don't bargain with uh, the United States over the federal tax rate. That's uniform. Right. But states and localities, on the other hand, are free to uh, offer incentives, especially for big employers, uh, somebody uh, creating a plant or uh, about to employ 100 workers. There's active competition there for incentives. Hmm. Yep. It's, it's everything except the federal is negotiable. <laughs> Exactly right. But uh, what, what if I what if I want to send one of uh, my key people to the United States for a f few years to get things set up right um, and work on conveying our company culture uh, to the U.S. subsidiary? Can I do that? What are the immigration choices available to me? Right. Very important. And of course, the U.S. recognizes that, as I think all countries do. Uh, very important question. In the United States, uh, a foreign uh, a person will learn, categorizes our visas from kind of A to Z. We give them letter names. And there are a number of different possibilities, but the two most basic are the L visa, the letter L, and the E visa, and sometimes the H visa. And that's a whole uh, podcast of its own. But very briefly, the E category is the investor visa. Uh, one is able, uh, if you invest a certain amount of money for particular countries, uh, to uh, be, be able to then get a work permit, call it, associated with it, and even uh, permanent residence uh, under some programs. The L visa is to transfer one of your key employees who has worked at least a year for the foreign business to transfer that person to the United States uh, to do what you were talking about, Kevin, to really in induce the, imbue the company culture and make sure the thing is uh, going well and that the product's made right or whatever it is the company's doing. That's the intercompany transferee category. 
And then the H visa is for people who have specialized education, engineers and architects and many other professions. Uh, so there are different ways that a company can send a foreign uh, executive or a highly skilled person uh, to the United States uh, for uh, a period of time. And often that can even lead ultimately to that person becoming a permanent resident of the United States. Okay. Joe, the last question I have uh, today um, is a bit of a catch-all, but uh, you, know, you work with um, companies from around the world, from Asia, Europe, South America. Uh, what are uh, the two or three most common mistakes that you see uh, investors making when they come to the United States? Well, one is to uh, think that uh, something they heard that's really a myth is true. For example, I've heard many foreigners come here and say, well, we have to be in Delaware. Well, Delaware is one of our great states uh, for public companies, and it's a premier state for publicly owned companies to form their company and deal with shareholders and so on and so forth. But Delaware is a very, very small state. Uh, it, it, it's not. It's on a coast, so it's not central to most customers. So one shouldn't come to the United States with mythology like that. Say, oh, I have to be in Delaware, or for a, let's say a computer-related uh, company. Say, oh, I have to be in Silicon Valley. Uh, we're, we're a much more diverse and complicated uh, company than that. So do a lot of homework. That's that's the first tip. The second tip, uh, a lot of companies will say, I hear everybody's suing everybody and I'm going to lose everything and I'm going to get sued. It's uh, not so. Uh, we, are, we have more lawyers than most countries, it is true. And mm -hmm. that's because we, we believe in individual rights and we protect them. And so if a company's not paid for its product, they can go to court and collect. That, you know, that's why we're a litigious society. On the, uh, the, the the scary stories one hears about, uh, about somebody got sued for hot coffee or whatever it is, you know, that really, Kevin, is all covered in general by insurance. Uh, and insurance is remarkably uh, affordable for people who make goods. Uh, or it's covered by the terms uh, that one sets for software or other things. So there are ways of dealing in the United States. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the world's largest economy. It would all be a nightmare, and it isn't. It's a very robust, uh, uh, freewheeling, uh, competitive business scene. And uh, so some of the mythology about litigation is really terribly misunderstood uh, around the world. Those would be the two top tips. The third is come, meet people, do your homework, spend a little time, and you'll find uh, really what remains is the single country uh, greatest market uh, in the world. We, we don't care where a good product comes from as long as it's uh, got quality and as long as it's affordable. If so, we're a great market. And uh, don't be deterred because of an ocean or a boundary. Uh, we're, we're, we live in a global world, and Americans are all immigrants anyway. So... Uh, we're very welcoming. Joe, uh, Sun Tzu in The Art of War said, uh, never enter a foreign territory without a local guide. And today you've been a great local guide, and we appreciate you joining us 
and being with us today. Well, Kevin, uh, I, I can't thank you enough. And for my friends in the Nordic areas, uh, Kitos, Mangatak, uh, Tusentak, and it's great to be with you, Kevin. Thank you, Joe. And from Sweden, Taksamikit. Joe Diener has offered a free copy of his book, Unlocking America, to listeners of this podcast, as long as supplies last. To get a copy, send us an email at office.stockholm at trade.gov. That's office.stockholm at trade.gov. This is Smart Investing in the United States a podcast brought to you by the U.S. Commercial Service offices in the Nordic region. Have a good week.